In Africa, the Maasai warriors are legendary. They protect their tribe, their land, and their cattle. And now they've also taken on a new role, guardians of the king of the jungle, lions. This episode is brought to you by the podcast services division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but explorers are tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Jumbo Habarayako, which is hello, how are you in Swahili, which is appropriate for today's guest, Egyptian-born Lila Haza, who is the founder of the Lion Guardian Program in East Africa, Kenya and Tanzania. She works with traditional Maasai warriors to protect lions. Lila, in 2014, was named one of CNN's top 10 heroes of the year. Lila, Jumbo, Jumbo Habarayako. Salama sana, nawewe. Yeah, Mazuri Sana. So, <laughs> so it's it's good to see you again. And right now, you're in Nairobi. I am. I'm in Nairobi. That's why we can connect with good Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, you and I were sort of uh, before we started, sort of kidding that um, you never know in um, Africa. I have uh, in-laws in in South Africa, and there's always a power outage, and then the Wi-Fi goes down. So, I, I think it's pretty amazing, though, considering where you are. Um, and that we're looking at each other across uh, a continent and, and an ocean. Absolutely, absolutely. The 
our infrastructure here, our technology infrastructure in Kenya is pretty remarkable, actually. I'm very fortunate to live in an African country where we have 3D printing and we have, you know, uh, uh, just amazing fiber wire to get fast internet and 5G or 4G. And it's it's pretty amazing what we can have out here. So before we get to um, your Lion Guardian program, which has really been a model for so many people, you were originally born in Africa, Egypt, but how does uh, an Egyptian girl fall in love with lions and, and end up being their guardians? Well, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., um, but I think that often gets confused because I have spent a lot of time traveling between Egypt and, and the U.S., and both of my parents are Egyptian. Um, so, you know, blood fully Egyptian. We, we go all the way back to Nefertiti, my family, and our bloodline, which is pretty cool. Um, but, you know, I, I think since I could walk, I was deeply in love with large mammals. <laughs> well, really all animals. I do love uh, reptiles. I love, I love everything that really kind of moves. But I had this, um, this infatuation with, with lions and elephants and just kind of these magical animals. And I used to just hear stories about them all the time when I would go to Egypt and, and my, my family, because we used to have lions in Egypt before they were extirpated and killed off. Um, and so I used to hear all these stories. And, and when I first arrived in Tanzania in, in, in 99, and I saw my first elephant, I was just blown away. <laughs> it was like, I knew I was at home. I knew this is, this was it. This is what I had to do. And then I saw my first lion pride chasing hyenas. And I was like, oh my God, could life get any better than this? <laughs> you, you've just sold uh, African safaris. I think that, <laughs> um, you know, that you probably know the old saying, once the dust of Africa gets on your boots, you'll always return. And mm. I have to agree. I mean, there's something about seeing the specter of animals doing their thing like they have done for thousands and thousands of years before. You mentioned uh, lions in um, in Egypt. I guess this would have been the Barbary lion, which is now uh, extinct. Uh, and that was sometime, when did those go extinct? In the 20s, turn of the, turn of the last century? I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. We don't really know. But yeah, 30s, 40s, it could even have been the 40s. We don't know. Um, but they just started disappearing pretty quickly from, from that area. Um, and, you know, just in Africa, we probably have 15, 20,000 lions left. You know, we don't have very many. And I think oftentimes people get so concerned about elephants and rhinos. But there are far more rhinos than there are lions left. And people are just shocked to realize that. But I think that as lion conservation and scientists, we've done a very poor job at messaging what's happening to lions. Um, and so we are working on that and trying to get better so people are aware that, you know, in 10 years, we may not have lions left if we don't do something, you know, dramatic to change the situation. Well, you're in Kenya, and uh, the flag of it, for people who, you know, can't picture it in their head, is black, red, green, with a big Maasai uh, shield on it. And uh, at least what I, I was taught, um, and I've visited that area many times, is that a rite of passage for a young Maasai warrior was to actually go with a spear and kill a lion. And so you've now, um, you work with uh, the Maasai uh, people, and you've sort of turned that thinking around. H how did that happen? Well, that, that's a big question. 
<laughs> that is a big uh, That's the essence <laughs> of that. I, I will, but before you even answer that, I'm <laughs> going to give you a compliment. I was talking to a good friend of yours yesterday, um, mm -hmm. his, uh, historian Milbury Polk, and she said, one of the things I love best about Leela, and she loves a lot of things about you, she said she's one of the most inclusive people culturally that she knows. And she said so much of your success in East Africa has been that genuine in your DNA, DNA inclusiveness, and that would extend over to the Maasai communities. Well, I, I love Milbury. She's been an absolute um, mentor for me. And I, yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have her, to have her in my life. Um, but it's, it's funny you say that because I was having a meeting with uh, a bunch of women that I run, uh, I work on another organization called Women for the Environment Africa, which we can talk about later. Uh, but we were having this big meeting and I was like, oh, and we can bring this person in, we can bring this person. So they have a joke now. They say Leela has an inclusive disorder, right? <laughs> and it's like- <laughs> That's a good one to have. I'm like, it's better than having an exclusion disorder, right? I mean, it's, it's really much better, but um, I, I do feel that there is space for everyone's voice and particularly in the environmental movement because we don't have time, right? And I think that we need to get away from, oh, this person doesn't have this education or they're too young or they're the wrong race or they're the wrong gender because we just don't have the time. We need everyone to pull up their sleeves and get involved. And I, I think, uh, and I learned that, I learned that working with Maasai I think, you know, I came in, um, I was in my late 20s, and I had a lot of experience working at this point, you know, working with large mammals, which I kind of said how much I love them. And by then, you know, I had been working with elephants, and started working with lions. But the problem, it, it, we weren't conserving lions by following lions around and getting to understand their behavior, or, or, you know, how far they were, they were traveling every day and what they were eating. That, that wasn't really helping lions. Um, at this time, lions were being absolutely slaughtered. You know, 50, 60 lions killed a year in a small area um, where we had such a dwindling population. We needed to understand why they were being killed, what, what was triggering that killing. And so I ended up living in, in the Maasai community. And wow, the, I learned so much. It was probably one of the the, the most important times in my life for learn, like in terms of learning. And I, I mean, I have, you know, a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD, and I can tell you that I can put all those books down and say, really my biggest learning came from living in, in the community because of that, the, the traditional knowledge about the environment that the Maasai have, they have such a great understanding of how ecosystems function and how, um, how important certain trees are and grasses and insects and the, the, just kind of the holistic picture of how things function. And so it was just like the greatest school ever. <laughs> and, and I think that's really helped me understand the system of, you know, how Maasai and the environment and lions all interact and, and how we can find a balance. Because it's about a balance. It's not let's stop all lion killing or let's stop, let's turn this into something else is what is that balance? And I think indigenous communities know what that balance is. And sometimes people don't listen so much because they might not look the way that, you know, most people look at a board meeting or something like that. So do, do you remember some of those, you know, everybody goes into a indigenous situation with a preconceived notion. You can't help it, right? You, you're conditioned mm -hmm. from what you have heard. What was the biggest aha 
moment or thought or, or, or development in your process of working with those people? There's, I mean, there's just so many, right? I mean, there was, it was really interesting. So there was an elder, I remember, it took me a long time for the community to trust me, for sure, because they were not used to people coming from outside living in the community. So building up that trust took a while. And it just, it, it, I spent a lot of time just listening, asking a few questions, but really just listening and, 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 and learning. Um, and there was one elder because um, I kept talking about the lions. They were very elusive. I think the Amboseli Savo lions are known to be one of the most elusive lions on the continent. Um, and so I was asking him about that, how difficult it is to find a lion, day or night, you know, you really have to search for them. And he was like, well, it's because they, they're very clever. They know that, you know, he's like 50, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, when we were warriors, we taught them, we put them in their place because they started eating too many of our livestock. So we kill, we, we know which ones to kill because if we kill those ones, the other ones will follow. Like well, they will recognize that we need to leave alone the cows for now. And so he said, they, what they start doing is they don't walk on soil because then we can see their tracks. They always move away from the soil or the substrate and move into grass or something that we can't see their tracks on rocks. Um, and he's like, so the lions here, we've taught them how to stay away from us, right? Um, but not that they killed all of them and they don't wanna kill them all. They've just picked the ones that were the most notorious, you know, uh, livestock killers, for example, and knew that if they picked those, the other ones would follow and they did, right? And they did. And so then we were never able to find them until later now we have this amazing population of lions that they walk on everything and they're like, you can see my tracks and I don't mind. But it's amazing how quickly lions change their behavior when they, when they're not persecuted anymore. Um, yeah, it's- So, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you, you would have had to have learned Swahili, right? You have to, to yeah. learn Swahili. I mean, yeah. they speak English, but to, to understand their culture. And it's interesting because you're, you're, you're mentioning adaptive behavior of animals. And I've heard that sperm whales attacking whaling ships. Um, I've seen on safaris where um, leopards or lions will follow behind jeeps because the- the fumes from the safari jeep mask mm -hmm. their scent from prey. So you, you do see that kind of interesting adaptive behavior. It, it, it's, it's amazing. We've seen it so much because we've seen a very persecuted lion population to, you know, over 15 years, we have seven times the number of lions than we had 10, 15 years ago, which is huge. I mean, it's probably one of the only growing lion populations outside of a protected area in Africa right now. Okay, so like that, that says so much. And it's not just lions, also elephants are doing exceptionally well. So we have this really healthy population. So that means the dynamics change, right? Um, that the way that they interact with communities, they're, they're, they're much bolder now than they were 10, 15 years ago. They'll, they'll you know, chase down donkeys right next to a homestead or a boma compared to before they would stay far, far away. And that's a problem because with more lions, there's more conflict. So the model that we created that was really purely based on cultural values and, and you know, back to your question of how did we change that? Well, we, we didn't change it. We, we worked with the communities to come up with something that is completely culturally appropriate. As you said, these warriors, the warriors in the community, they, you know, they grew up killing lions for fun. It was a, it was a way to prove that you were a man and, you know, it showed that you were brave and it, and it attracted all these lovely ladies towards you, you know, so as any young man, that, that's, just, that's, that's what you want to do. Um, 
But what ended up happening was that that culture started shifting anyways. Women started becoming really attracted to men who had jobs, for example, who could buy more cows. Okay, hey, you know they I mean? are That's- in the U.S. as well, just so you know. <laughs> if you're a guy, right? being out of work is not a, you know, is not sort of a chick magnet, as they say. Well, exactly. So being out of work and like, you know, say I killed a lion or, hey, I could buy you a pretty new dress. I I think that's, you know, that that's where things have shifted. So that that shift was happening anyways. And so there was a deep desire um, for these warriors to be part of something, right? Be part of something because they were left out in this process during the conservation movement um, where, you know, land was set aside for conservation, for example, tourism came into some of these areas. They were either going with people who were educated, okay, who've gone to tourism school, proper guides, um, or, you know, other conservation organizations were hiring older people, um, maybe that as game scouts or other, other employment opportunities, but not really the warriors. And the warriors kept saying, well, we, our duty in the community, we're here to, we're the army, we're, we're supposed to protect our community, but no one is giving us that opportunity. And so there was this resentment that was building up within them anyways, and that was triggering some of that lion killing. But they have all of the traditional knowledge to track lions, because they were killing them and tracking them very, you know, successfully. And um, they, they're, they're, you know, they're fulfilling their traditional role. Um, they they can get some money so they can still like get ladies when they want ladies you know they were able to like kind of click tick all of these boxes and they, they were doing this cool job right so this cool factor is very important I think especially when you're a young man you got to do something cool so we you know we have these um these telemetry units these big you know um boxes where you can track colored lions and so they used to go into town you know, it'd be like just a normal town in the middle of Masailan. And there's no collared lions even slightly close to these towns, but they would stand up on top of the land cruiser and start tracking to show all the women, look how cool they are with their backpack, their GPS unit and their telemetry gear. Um, uh, there are certain <laughs> themes and, you know, maybe it's politically not correct these days to talk about one's libido, but man, it is such a driving mechanism for young men. I mean, you know, you can say all you sort of want about things, but, you know, when you're a young guy, you want to be noticed. You really want to be noticed. And uh, and I think the idea of putting something new and shiny in their hands. But so how are you, you're giving them jobs to be these guardians. Now, how are you supporting this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, and again, with more lines, the way that we link this to the community when we started, we said, okay, so, with more lions, we need more guardians. So it's up to them. They choose to kill some lions, there'd be less jobs, right? So it's really like, and I think that's a really important point is that we're not saying, you know, this is what it has to be the outcome. They have to make decisions as a community. There might be a problem lion that is really, let's say it's an old male, their teeth are falling apart. They cannot hunt anymore. They, they might just need to be killed because they only can, it can take goats or something at that point. So if the community makes that decision, that's okay, but they are also losing an opportunity. But as the lion population started steadily growing, 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 we had to add more and more guardians. So we started with five guardians. We have over 40 guardians covering, you know, 4,000 square kilometers now, um, you know, a massive area. We've expanded our work to other countries in Africa, um, which has been really cool. So we're not this small, tiny organization, but one thing we all, we didn't want to become too big though. We didn't want to franchise and become too big because then you're not nimble or innovative. You start becoming stuck. 
and you become bureaucratic and you have like eight vice presidents or whatever. <laughs> it's just not the way that we want it to function. So um, we still are trying to keep ourselves between a million, like, you know, a million and maybe a million and a half dollars a year to do what we do. Um, and that's, you know, so it's not a small, small organization, but it's not too big either. It's still, it's still doable. The impact we have is huge uh, for that amount of money. And so, you know, we fundraise like any other NGO, we get out there. Um, you know, we've, we've really connected with individuals that deeply believe in the cause and what we're doing. Um, I think that's really important is like just finding people that uh, that obviously love lions, but also really believe in communities as part of the solution. You know, we're not doing this just for lions. We're not working in Serengeti National Park, Park on purpose, right? We're working in the communities around Serengeti with partners. We're trying to link lion populations between Serengeti and Gorongoro in Tanzania because that's what we do. We, we provide safe passage for lions in community land. Um, and I think that's kind of our bread and butter, you know, and we can do that now with other species. We started sharing knowledge with a group that's working with tigers and leopards in India, which is really cool to be able to do that. Um, the knowledge is very, it's a knowledge base that can be transferred um, or applicable in various, in various areas as long as there are communities willing to sit down and have a discussion of how they can engage. You know, it sort of goes back to your original theme of, um, being inclusive or what's, what's your, um, inclusivity? I'm a, I have an inclusive, an inclusive, inclusive disorder. Well, but I, I think that if you look at, um, uh, anthropologists around the world and, and other big wildlife, uh, or any wildlife, the idea is not so much me going to, uh, East Africa and saying, Hey, wow, I saw these people who wear sandals that the Romans wore, but instead we're allowing people to tell their own story. And, and I see that as such a model of allowing indigenous local people to sort of uh, have pride in taking care of their own area and that, that it, it is worth something. Now, I know you're extending that type of program into um, women as well in uh, East Africa. So is, is, is that sort of, was that the natural extension of this? Well, I guess, um, I, I guess it was for me. I mean, I guess it's an, we all go in our, on our own kind of individual journeys, don't we? Um, as we, we work in a space, being in conservation for, you know, 20 plus years, recognizing the slow pace of change was very frustrating. Um, I, I just cannot keep watching species decline so rapidly or, or areas being destroyed. And so I want to do more. It's this, this idea that we, we need to do more. Um, obviously, lions are very important as an apex predator. They're very important in ecosystem. But how do we protect lions and elephants and everything else? How do we like step it up a little bit? And so I got really interested in working around leadership. How do we how do we improve the leadership space in the in the environmental sector? Because it's pretty destructive. Um, it's, you know, it's ego driven in many ways, uh, which is really such a shame. And there's this mindset of scarcity where people think there's just not enough resources to go around. So people have a great idea and they don't want to share it. And that's just the, like, the worst thing we can do because we have to share. And back to my <laughs> inclusion disorder is that like, I, ju I just think that whenever there is a good idea, we, we need to get it out there. We need to roll it out, we need to scale it. And so if people are worried about not getting funding, 
you know, or, or not getting credit, you know, my name is not on this. It's just, it's, it's not really the right field for that, but it's what has, um, has been hampering, I guess, progress. So I started really working on in the leadership space a little bit more. And st I started, started, you know, thinking about, well, where are there big gaps in leadership? Um, and one of them is that, you know, obviously we, we all believe that in, inclusion and diversity is very important at getting innovative ideas, getting bigger ideas, actually rolling things out. Well, when you have less than 5% at the top levels in Africa that are filled by women at those high positions, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a big problem because women lead very differently. And I think that's something that people always say, well, is that you just want women? It's like, no, 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 no. We need men and women, right? We just don't have like... We have a gender imbalance in leadership, particularly in Africa. So I feel that if we can have more women in those top positions, we will have better outcomes. You know, we will have bigger impact on the environment. Um, so that's something that I started about three years ago, working with others, uh, a group called Women for the Environment Africa or We Africa. And it's been amazing. It's been it's been incredible. We, you know, we have we have a program called We Lead which is a 12-month kind of transformative leadership experience um, where we, you know, this is our first cohort that we're running now. We have women from 12 different countries in Africa at kind of the C-suite level. It's been amazing to, to be part of that. We, you know, we bring speakers in from, from across the globe. Um, and then we, we have a big scaling component where we want to connect with others, right? Because we think environmentalism, environmentalism is the essence of life. It, it needs to be connected to everything and everybody. So whether you're an artist or a feminist or a journalist, right? There, there is, we're all connected to nature. And so there are opportunities to spread the word and spread the message so we can all start, you know, taking care of something we, we all deeply believe in and, and need. You know, I think you're, you're also now going to cultural shifts, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I recall being in the Dan and Kill depression of Ethiopia. That's that hottest place in, in the world. And as a Western male, I go in there and I see women. I mean, honestly, the animals were being kept better than them. And I know that sounds like a very disparaging yes. remark on that thing. What I find difficult is that in my good intention, as again, a Western thinking person, I could go there and say, hey, this is wrong. But I remember saying that once to a, a whaling guy in Iceland, and he goes, look, I come to London and New York, and I see you choking the planet. Who's wrong, me whaling or you choking the planet? So, you know, that's, that's always such a um, difficult sort of balance to strike because you, you don't want to come in there as the, and I'll, I'll use the uh, Swahili uh, phrase, Mazunga Maku, the, the great white chief, <laughs> and say, uh, this is how it should be done. So how are you striking that balance where you keep the credibility, yet you're not uh, sort of imposing your thoughts on on these people? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess the thing is, Richard, at the end of the day, it's we all want the same thing. So I think we need to maintain that mutual purpose, regardless of who I'm talking to, whatever space I am in. As long as we connect to the mutual thing that we both want, that I'm not imposing anything. We want to get there. We want to get there quickly. And so if there's a recognition that having some inclusion or diversity in the decision-making space is important, which I think we would all believe in, then it's, then it's fine. Because I'm not pushing anything. I'm just saying, 
hey, we really need to get there because we're running out of time, right? That, and so here's an opportunity. And I think that's a little bit different than say, you know, let's take off our bras and burn them in, a, you know, and run around. Like, I mean, there is like nothing, like, <laughs> that's not it. We just deeply care about nature and we know women have, to, their voices have to be part of that as I, as are others. Like I really deeply believe that um, people, indigenous communities need to be part of that decision-making space as well, right? And they're often left out because they don't have the education. They don't have the language, um, you know, the English language or whatever to be able to communicate at that level. And it's really frustrating because if you, if you look at our team, which, you know, I think we've been a quite a very successful organization. I mean, 98% of our team are Maasai from the communities. A lot of them haven't gone to school. Um, you know, we have very senior managers that are making big decisions that are holding big budgets and they haven't gone to school. Um, it's not about that, right? It's, 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 it's about a, a passion, um, an ability to, to jump in and know that, oh, there's a challenge, let's run toward it instead of running away from it. You know, it's, it's that, that's what it is. It's leadership. Leadership is not the, what degree do you have or how many languages you speak. And I think people tend to forget that. So it's the profile of a leader. Maybe we need to start thinking about what that looks like. Leela, we started this um, conversation saying you were actually born in, in Washington. And um, I, there used to be a movie, Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I almost could see Leela Hazak goes to Washington because everything that you have described is really the more than the Band-Aid. It's the culture shift that all leadership needs to see. So listen, thank you for coming on Life's Tough Explorers or Tougher. You are a hero of the planet and, and we need more of you. So shed a little of that over here to the United States. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.